quote i saved you a little quote first of all um this is a day after the day that will live in infamy because it's december 8th and yesterday was pearl harbor day and today which i didn't realize is the 40th anniversary of john lennon's murder how about oh, that i have no feelings about that <laughs> i don't care about john lennon he was a wife beater that is Fuck. true I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna say yeah just I'm not, well, I'm not going to say it because we're going to edit it out, but I don't give, I don't care about John Lennon. That's what yeah, I'll say. I think you're allowed to say that. I can Fuck say that. John I, Lennon? Yeah, that's fine. I care about him because I have an attachment to the Beatles and I think he was funny. And that really, he's a problematic fave. I, I recognize that. Problematic so, fave. Yeah. I like Yoko a lot. So that's interesting because I was People raised to really not demonize like Yoko. Yeah. I don't see what they're, I don't, I don't have a problem with Yoko. It's that she's a woman who had her own beliefs and also people really get horny for the Beatles, myself included, but I at least have a more global sense. Yeah. And they, I know they blame her for the band breaking up, but like, it was on the the downslope anyway, you know? Yeah, come on. It had to, they got a lot done. It had to end sometime. So first of all, this is exceedingly persuasive. I'm Mackenzie Brennan. I'm Brooke Rogers. And I have a little treat for you, Brooke Rogers. So it's really not, I'm like really hyping this up, but it's just that I found a funny Peter Lorre reference. So Brooke and I recently watched um, Arsenic and Old Lace. Maybe the first time, I'd never seen it before. Which is a great, it's a great fall movie because it's kind of a spooky movie, um, but also it's an older movie, which is always good, like around holiday times, those are fun. Um, It's really funny and it stars Peter Lorre, who is a weird little actor from, like, he was active for a lot of decades, but I think the movie's from the late 40s. But Brooke was really taken with his voice in that she was really disgusted by it. Um, he, I can't, couldn't stand it. It was so, it was like, it was like he was putting on an affect, but in like the weirdest, most off-putting way. It really bothered me. Yeah. It's, I don't know it's why. an off-putting voice. And he, apparently, I found this quote from him, and he said, all that anyone needs to imitate my voice is two soft-boiled eggs and a bedroom voice. <laughs> Ew. See, that sounds <laughs> disgusting. Isn't that gross? Well, first of all, a bedroom voice is supposed to be like a sexy voice, right? Yeah, I think of like a horny cat, like, oh. That's, wh- why do you think of a horny cat when you go bedroom voice? Because I'm trying to connect it to Peter Lorre's actual voice and like how you, oh. how you link bedroom voice to like... Yeah, I think a bedroom voice is, like, sultry. I, I can't do but it. Then but then you put two eggs imagine. in your cheeks, I guess. Two soft I, See, I assume that it was, like, in your throat. You're shoving oh. hard-boiled eggs down your throat. And that'll That's bounce. a choking hazard, my friend. I don't know. You should not try to talk. We don't endorse with, that. Yeah, that's not <laughs> a... Lori might. We can do we what don't. you want, but we don't... Yeah, we're <laughs> not going to put... We're not going to stamp our approval on that. Um, yeah, no. disgu- so I feel vindicated. That's disgusting. <laughs> I, I also... I have a hot problem. Listen hard-boiled eggs are fine 
if they are put onto something else or in something. Like, I like deviled eggs. Deviled eggs, I, I, I like, like no lot. eggs unless they're cooked down to a point that I don't know there are eggs. Yeah, so. but hard-boiled eggs, like, just... You ever seen someone just, like, house oh. a hard-boiled egg? You know what? You know what's the worst? If you see somebody house an egg on a plane, and you can... Oh! Yeah. That makes like, sense, because I was just... I was just on a plane for because I was flying back from Arizona where we were both together. I got tested three times, once before I got on the plane. They really got us after in her I quarantined until we I had just drove around the desert tests. Yeah, we, we, like, we literally did nothing while we were even there, but I did it safely, just so everyone knows. Um, yeah, we were very but good. I on the, the entire time on the plane, I'm wearing a 95 mask under another. So you know if something is getting through, it's yeah. really powerful. I'm. Hand, like sanitizing my hands all the time. I'm like really care. I'm like freaking out. It's so, like the thought now of someone eating a hard boiled egg with their bare hands on a plane. Oh, and all the goop. It gives me the- hives. Ugh, well, because like my mom armed us with like, pervert. she's like, here and 95 masks and here ones to like wear over it. And here's what you like wipe down every like the buckles and the tray I, Naomi campled that shit. As soon as I got on, I was like wiping every, every now, surface down. Right. But, like, I always think when I get on the subway or when I'm walking around and I smell, like, a human-based odor, like, I really don't want to experience any human-based odor that can make it through this face cover. Like, I am six feet away. You don't like the smell of subway shit anymore, Mackenzie? What happened to you? Like, that is so pungent. And I never want to smell anything that can make it through that barrier of space and Anyways. Wow, this is a very disgusting already. Egg tangent. Is- I know. Eggs really rile me up. I don't <laughs> no know egg tangents say. in this podcast. Uh, well, food, hunger strike, uh-huh. like a direct connection from eating well hard-boiled eggs to and our, our topic today. Because we can talk about that the crown did not birth, did not lay this egg, so to speak, but it is somewhat connected. Um given the so anyway we're going to talk about hunger strikes today in context of ice detainees right now who are on hunger strike um in detention in new jersey and it sounds like have been for a while in a lot Across of different the country yeah yeah ice detention facilities but um arguably the most famous example of hunger strikes in detention also has become relevant in a lot of like popular culture right now and that is the IRA prisoners in the 70s during the Troubles, which is the most Irish. And I, everything I say here, I say is an Irish Catholic. Like, I, so take it with a grain of salt. But it is the Mackenzie most Mackenzie can't Irish. be racist toward the Irish because she is an Irish. Yes. And in fact, I'm glad you say racist because I do have a book on my shelf from my grandma that says, uh, When the Irish Became White is the title. Um, right. And that's uh, actually... I've, I've, There's some truth to it. Yeah, to the discrimination that book, element. Yeah, talks about how the Irish assimilated into like being considered yeah. a white so, group of people because they were right. yeah they were discriminated against for a long time for jobs and and that's a um, piece of, of the IRA troubles too. Um, which, but my whole point there was it is the most Irish like restrained martyry way to describe this like multi century conflict that killed people. It's like oh no troubles. Like, yeah, it's, it's what like when you you're discussing your unpleasant. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like oh, the, it's like they got it's, they didn't get divorced. They, they got yeah, they have great. troubles. It's right. like so <laughs> it's so vague, but like unpleasant. And, and they're like, just like oh, it's not. It's not murder. It's 
a trouble. The troubles, um, which trouble. it's really funny that War you use divorce because that's the whole reason that we're here, right? It's because Henry VIII wanted to get divorced. And before that, the UK, the, uh, the United Kingdom, England, yeah. etc., was Catholic. And the Catholic Church didn't allow divorce. And so he made the whole country Protestant and Ireland stayed Catholic. And it's all been shit ever since. Just Henry VIII was a big old yeah. slut. And He's now, the worst. And everything his fault. Then has been uh, awful. And this is why, children, you do not have premarital sex. Mm-hmm. And you marry one person and you stay Catholic with them forever. Oh, I'm, I'm nailing it. I'm nailing it as an Irish Catholic myself. From every angle. Um, yeah, that's the, 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 long, the long-winded um, moral. This is like Veggie Tales. We're condensing a big moral idea into an entertaining small episode. There will be music later. Um, but the, yeah, what we're, we're, this actually has a very evangelical message, uh, which oh, is, God. you know, uh, don't divorce your Catholic wife and change the church's entire and the, the entire uh, religious belief of the, of the country. Evidently. Thus, the whole like Charles and Diana. So Brooke and I watched The Crown in Arizona. Um, the most recent season where, you know, all that fun stuff with Diana and Charles happened. And actually, this is kind of an interesting connection there. The, um, so the iteration of the Troubles in like the 70s and 80s had a lot of connection to Prince Charles and Princess Diana meeting because she went up to him after his uncle, Lord Mountbatten, was killed by IRA people when he was just like, he was on a boat with his grandkids um, off the coast of Northern Ireland and somebody bombed him, killed him and his 14-year-old and 15-year-old grandkids, which yeah. I think is pretty messed up. Um, like no, he, we can all agree that's, that's very messed up. Yeah. yeah. But so uh, Prince Charles being the drip that he was, um, was really mopey about it, which like, I mean, yeah, when sure. was Prince Charles <laughs> not mopey? This is, a, this like, is the thing that Diana didn't know. I know that he never <laughs> stops whining. Like the I know his uncle died, but this is him. I yeah, I know this is not even about his uncle. Like it, it could have been like the, the sky could have been the wrong color nail. blue that day, and Cheryl, Charles mm-hmm. would be like, uh, "This is a direct attack on my person." Oh, my life is so what hard. What a powder! I've literally never yes. seen. Like, and this is okay. So going into this whole this whole conversation, um, it all entered. We should establish two things. Yes. One, we both agree that uh, civilian deaths is a bad thing and non defensible. We do not endorse. Yes, we do not endorse. However, um, on this is one of those issues that Mackenzie and I have kind of different feelings on because, um, ironically, because I'm the Irish one. Yeah, you should be gung ho <laughs> for the motherland right now, and I'm the one who's like, um, I definitely have more sympathy. Ooh, Sutter home. Mackenzie just held a nice Sutter home uh, to, up to the camera, and uh, it gets feisty. I get when, she talks when I Sutter home, I get very feisty, and I say things. Uh, that uh, cannot be repeated on this podcast, but um, <laughs> the IRA and its <laughs> tactics. <laughs> and uh, uh, I start singing Irish drinking songs, and it's all downhill from there. Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like th- I have a lot more um, maybe sympathy for not again, like not the violence that they enacted on others, but just the uh, 
you know, Northern Ireland has been called like the first, uh, the first colony. The Irish people were under the boot of um, the British government for a very long time. And I understand and sort of sympathize with um, the, uh, the instinct to push back against that kind of oppression. Not that you don't, yeah, like, but I we, think it's more, yeah, the difference is where we, like, maybe what in our own heads we prioritize, because I think that for you, the lens through which you see it is so much the the monarchy and the mm-hmm. situational oppression, State oppression and, yeah. and, and I see it more as tactic based. Um, what is, whether this is effective, what our end goal is like. So I think right. that both of them are valid and we both feel similar things. It's just where those things rank in our own assessment of the situation. Cause right. You know, absolutely. God knows um, they're going to kick me out of the, the genetic pool. <laughs> they're not going to let you back in. And also two wrongs doesn't make a right because I want to say that too, that, um, you know, the way that the monarchy treated prisoners was abysmal. Um, yeah. And obviously the monarchy does not have a great track record, nor does the PM when this period that we're talking about yeah. starts, who is the inimitable Margaret Thatcher. Recognized states get away with a lot of violence against uh, groups that it deems, like you can kind of label a group something and then- Yeah, it's um, tricky. You, international before, only recognizes states. So. Right, and so it's- you know, there like if you look at the violence inflicted by by Great Britain throughout history. I mean, the yeah. the just the uh, the incredible amount of of death and human suffering and completely wiping out cultures and history um, <laughs> through colonization. They really nailed that. Yeah, yeah. It's like the, they do not have uh, between the IRA and the British government. Like they do not have the moral high ground in any way. Nobody does. Form. Yeah, it's right. just like it, it's a game of two cocaine, which is that it's a logical fallacy that I'm sure I've mentioned on this show before because it comes up so much. It essentially, in Latin, it just means you're another. And like, that doesn't absolve either side of guilt. Like, yeah. you can't just be like, well, we kill people because you also kill people. Like, that, right. that doesn't solve a whole lot in a, in a logical sense. Um, that said, Margaret Thatcher is a demon. And I say that even after watching a full season of The Crown where Gillian Anderson plays her and gives she me very plays, feelings. Yeah, she plays She's her really good. Um, very well. I, I think that a lot of people in this watch, so actually Mackenzie and I both watched in preparation for this episode, the, this, uh, the movie Hunger. It's a 2008 movie with Michael Fassbender. Uh, it's dark. It's so rough. Heads up about that. Um, but we, we like literally we, like, finished the movie and I like closed the computer and I was like, well, that was a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Hey. <laughs> yeah, don't maybe don't watch uh, Hunger with your significant other um, in any, or any kind. Of, he handled he handled it like a champ, but it was well, good. Uh, for, you know, watch Hotel Rwanda. Gotta say, not a date movie. Um, there are certain movies that just are not conducive to dates, and um, Hunger is one of them. We would put it, it in that create a romantic vibe. You know and what I so mean? take it with that characterization. Uh, another piece of media that's very good that kind of sparked my interest. Uh, within the last year, it's been in my head. So a journalist called Patrick Redden Keefe wrote a book called Say Nothing. And it's, it's not fiction, but it's a very novelized account of some of the prisoners and ones that come up in our discussion, including a couple women prisoners who actually were force fed and ended up surviving and eventually were released. 
but suffer um, like long-term complications. Uh, essentially like what you get from eating disorders, like very severe eating disorders that your body can't process food anymore yeah. because it's trained itself to function without it and break down yeah. muscle and, and things like uh, that. So there's the, the one thing this, that hunger did really well. Um, yeah. Don't watch it. Um, if you like, if, if you're, you're in a bad flirty. place mentally or if you're feeling <laughs> or, Yeah. If, yeah, if you want to make out later or you just want to be in a good mood, do not watch Hunger. Um, one thing that Hunger did really well is show what something like this does to the human body. So to, just to kind of give you the context of what this movie's about, the 1981 Hunger Strikes, they, were, they took place in Longkesh Prison, notorious prison in Belfast where a lot of IRA prisoners were held. Ultimately, 10 people died of the Hunger Strikes, but... The, the name that most people think of when they think of these hunger strikes is Bobby Sands. Bobby Sands is a 27-year-old from Belfast. He joined the IRA when he was 19, or 18, I'm sorry, when he was 18 years old um, after witnessing both religious and class oppression against his family and other people in Northern Ireland. That was something he kind of dedicated his life to at a very young age, uh, which is why he ended up in prison um, with a 14-year sentence, I believe, uh, After a bombing, I believe. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, they couldn't prove that he was involved with the bombing because he did not recognize, he refused to recognize the authority of the court and would not give any information other than his name and address. But they did find a gun that was involved in a previous shooting. Um, so he got 14 years and he was in prison. During this time, there were several forms of protest that took place among the IRA prisoners. The first was a blanket protest, which they refused to wear prison uniforms because they felt that it was admitting criminality and on their on their behalf. And then there were two hunger strikes. One was, I believe, briefly considered uh, successful uh, because the British government capitulated to their uh, to their demands briefly but then later didn't really fall through. And then the later one in 1981, Bobby Sands was only one of the many IRA prisoners who took part in the hunger strike, but he was the first to die. It was after 66 days of not eating. And the movie Hunger really represents what happens to your, your body uh, in the event of a long, uh, long-term hunger strike like that. And, and we will discuss that more in a minute. Yeah, first, maybe in relation... To uh, maybe in relation to uh, what, like different degrees of hunger strike, because I know that you mentioned that um, before we recorded that some of the ICE facilities have different definitions of what a hunger strike is and that right. sometimes it's not full. But Bobby Sands did not eat for 66 days. Yeah. Um, and and, and that, a lot of the ICE detention center hunger strikes, they, they, they never got to that scale where right. Bobby Sands was prepared to die. Like he was ready to, to die for this cause. Um, and they didn't and force feed him, um, right? They, they did not medically intervene. Yeah. Um, but let's so let's rewind a little bit, talk about what the IRA uh, was and is, and sure. what the circumstances surrounding it were. So to distill what is like centuries of conflict, obviously, like we're talking about Henry the Eighth in the beginning. So this is a long term conflict, but. Um, the official name of the United Kingdom is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland is the top of the Irish island. Um, you got Ireland at the bottom, you have Great Britain and the rest of the UK on the side, but the little top there is Northern Ireland, and that is a British sovereign territory. It's, it's, 
it's even closer than the Commonwealth in that it, it's like Britain proper, um, or UK proper rather. So the, the makeup demographically when the troubles, you know, in the seventies, part of the troubles, I don't know when we definitionally decide that the trouble started, but Sure. So 70s. The troubles um, were getting rolling. They were, people were dabbling their troubled. feet into I, the you troubles. Know, yeah, we're, we're troubled people. <laughs> but, and we kind of like it. It gives us some clout. But so the, the difficult thing for me um, in grappling with this, certainly not with the discrimination piece because this, this facilitates discrimination, but in terms of sovereignty, the religious majority in Northern Ireland at the time and since, so throughout to the, the current day, is majority Protestant, whereas Irish, because of that whole schism under Henry VIII, uh, is Catholic. So you have a Catholic Irish minority and a Protestant majority that wants to stay allied with Great Britain because it's it, it kind of has become beyond yeah. religion because if you look at the religious texts, it's the same thing. It's just this tribalist right. cultural sense of division that is so entrenched um and you do see things like discrimination as you go back and and i think that was a catalyst for bobby sands too that yeah uh, it was like no catholics need apply like you saw in the u.s too and so it kind of permeated bobby sands specifically was pushed out of his family was pushed out of two different communities for being catholic Mm -hmm. even though they didn't they, they were very careful with how they practiced and so they wouldn't draw attention to themselves but the one thing that just to add on what you're saying um, it, it is, there is a religious element to it, but you, it can't, what can't be overlooked is the, um, economic impact oh, yeah. that on, on these people, this, the, there would not have been a backlash. Yeah. It was, it's, right. it sort of went hand in hand, but what really caused, um, the backlash to, and like the, you know, what, what caused the radicalization of a lot of these people had nothing to do fundamentally with religious differences, right. but the, um, the class element of like the uh, the it's fact the that they were suffering class. because mm-hmm. they were discriminated against um, and yeah. the, the economic impact of that and the societal impact of that. And I think that's why you hear, I know there's been a fair amount of backlash and I, I do understand where a lot of it comes from, but when people have compared uh, the Irish experience, like Irish Catholic experience in the US to other forms of discrimination, because obviously, it's very easy for me as a white person to pass as any other type of white person, um, always would have been. But if you look back at things like the Northern Ireland experience and Irish immigration at the time, there was a lot of hatred for Irish Catholics because they were seen as um, a level of non-white in a way that anybody who wasn't WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, so British, um, that tier, it's dirtier, it's um, lower class, it's different. um, We saw that in America, as you you were saying, um, there was anti-Irish discrimination. Um, But also, just to to kind of expand on that, uh, for people who live within Ireland, they can pinpoint where you're from based on your accent. It's not just an Irish accent or English accent. It's like, Oh, you're from Belfast. I can tell by the way you're speaking, or you're, you know, there are these different. You're from Cork. These different areas, hey. um, where they can. Uh, oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> where they can. So, so there, it it makes it much easier to um, discriminate based off of like they if they can it's tell like, passing like, oh, you're isn't from, as easy. Sure, yeah, you're yeah. from like this kind of you know 
quote unquote dirtier or like a uh, poorer area. And I can tell yeah, by your accent. Class to it. Yeah, it, actually, it becomes pretty holistic. But if you want a really lighthearted um, kind of intro into the troubles, uh, I will give, I will get, any chance I get to plug this show, I will. Dairy Girls on Netflix, which I have watched probably three or four times at this point. You can um, comprehend them. Oh, yeah. Maybe watch with captions the first time. You will get it eventually, <laughs> I promise. But delightful show about uh, four girls growing up in the during the 90s toward the latter end of the Troubles. The third season ends, second or third season ends with um, Clinton visiting at, mm. when they were kind of, uh, that was toward the end of the Troubles. But it gives a good idea. There's this episode where um, the, obviously they're, they're Catholic, they go to a Catholic school, and uh, something that was actually referenced in Hunger as well was there were, they tried to do a lot of these like inter-community, inter-religious bonding experiences. Which is to kind try of to a good idea. Of, yeah, especially with younger kids. If it's well kids, executed, yeah. So that they would get to know each other. So they'd have like Protestant and Catholic kids. Um, in Hunger, the anecdote that Bobby Sands talks about was a cross-country meet. And Dairy Girls, they do this like three-day weekend thing where they like go rappelling together and um, it's like, they, they, at first they try to like find similarities and they can't and uh, the, the whole thing kind of breaks down. It's ridiculous. Start, like, it's screaming ridiculous. anti, like Catholic and anti-Protestant things that each other happens in the episode. But it's a good, it's a good kind of glimpse into, yes. um, if you don't want to watch something as traumatizing as Hunger or any there other. There you go. You get a little taste a little, of it. Or yeah. honestly, The Crown does talk about it and, and it frames the Thatcher thing. Um because I think she really, as the prime minister at the time that a lot of this was going on, um, as somebody who should have cared that people, like two factions within her state were killing each other, um, that really should have been a cause for concern. Whether or not you think that what um, any of the IRA members did was was murder or some other label. I, I tend to think like, yes, it is bad. Terrorists, died. freedom fighters, you know, right. there are the all these different terms slim. you can That's use. Fine. Um, like, uh, semantics are less of a problem to me than the fact that under her observation, there is a big fallout going on. People are opting to die in prison for the cause by starving themselves. And you're just like, oh, murder is murder. And yeah, no, that, exact, you got to do something. <laughs> exact quote from Thatcher. Um, so the one of the main uh, demands that uh, the IRA had during the hunger strikes, um, they were trying to be recognized as political prisoners versus just regular, you know, pr prisoners that had gone, that had been put in jail because of crime. So the, Which it, they did commit, like, they did commit crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They committed murder. And like they like committed that. traditional, if you will, um, interstate or intrastate, rather, intrastate property damage, murder of civilians, et cetera. So, which they that's saw what I tend as. To focus on. Oh, absolutely. Like, they're, yeah. they, innocent people died. Um, they, in the IRA saw that as like casualties of war. They saw that as like they were fighting a, they were fighting a war. For, Which is not allowed um, in like United either. Ireland, right? Exactly. Yeah, no, it's I mean, crimes, like, no matter what, um, <laughs> right? But they they saw they were fighting for United Ireland. They were fighting for freedom um, from oppression from the uh, from the British government. But the um, the so what for to them being categorized as criminals 
when they were sent to prison versus prisoners of war was a very important distinction. Not only because they were, they would have been under until I believe 1976, they were categorized as political prisoners. And under that distinction, they had different allowances in prison. Is they that were allowed a UK to wear, distinction? Do you know? I believe that it was, yeah, it's under specifically their law. Um, okay. Okay. They were allowed to wear their own clothes. They, so they weren't wearing prison uniforms, which was important to them from a symbolic point of view. Um, another thing was um, as political prisoners, they weren't required to do prison labor. They were also allowed to freely congregate and um, uh, discuss things they weren't like separated and, and like forced sure. to kind of do this like whole like messages through um very you know, orifices or whatever uh <laughs> yeah. but the and um there were several other uh they they also wanted to be able to receive parcels or letters things like that and have i think which is another visits. yeah it's a big like a lot of the families and this is another thing that um I, maybe I, I feel more connected to it because i i do fit into that but like a lot of the families of these people, and it's something that my mom and I have talked about with this whole, there's such a Catholic, Irish Catholic martyrdom, um, stoicism sort of thing, and that yeah. you saw a lot of the families of strikers saying like, that's right, honey, um, that's my son, keep striking for the cause. Because they felt just as passionate um, about yeah. this as their children did in, in many cases, and they also saw it as like they were fighting for the freedom of their people. Um, you know, there again, like we can talk about that being misguided or not, but when you're oh, living this is just under personal opinion, yeah, yeah, I mean, like what are you gonna do? But it, it's just hard not to see that because my mom and I were talking about like what cause from her perspective would I care about enough to let you die for it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also to see how effective it is, which I, obviously you never know at the beginning. Um, but then one other thing that I wanted to note was, uh, I don't know that this makes a huge difference or that it's worth underscoring because it almost is a, a misguided thing to underscore, but the civilians that were killed were Northern Irish city, like civilians. Right. They, so, they were um, part of their communities. Their basically. own community. Yeah. So like, I don't know that that is, I don't think it makes a difference, but in terms of laws of war and political prisoners, it's like people within your own professed state if it were kurds killing kurds in kurdistan that would be the parallel yeah um so it it is a bit of a a difference in an international law sense in terms of of classifying the political prisoner thing i think is uk based but um like i was saying to brooke beforehand um when i visited belfast in like 2010 i stayed in the most bombed hotel in the world, which I was shocked to learn that the most bombed hotel in the world is in Belfast. I, I would have thought that it was in some war-torn region, but yeah. it, no, it was the troubles that like quietly were bombing our own people <laughs> on our home turf. Yeah. Well, and there was, you know, there was also, um, it was bombings by the IRA, but then it was also, you know, the, it was a conflict zone. It was like, there was, um, yeah. There's like a DMZ. Mm-hmm. Right. There are British officers who were occupying that space as well. And they treated um, the prisoners very, very poorly. That was where a lot of their abuse came from. I mean, they violated the Convention Against Torture. Um, I think British that side. one thing just talk just to, to go back to what you were saying about there being causes that you, that, you know, what yeah. your mom asking if there were any causes that she'd be willing to let you die for. I think... Part of that is like maybe uh, a little bit of um, worship of suffering or, um, you know, uh, 
glorifying suffering a little bit, uh, glorifying martyrdom, I think also speaks to how bad the situation was that um, uh, there was this part of this BBC documentary that I was watching where um, a a journalist, it was actually, I believe it was shot during the late 70s. He's walking through parts of Belfast and it is just completely bombed out. But he's walking through these apartments that are um, no bigger than my apartment in New York, which is, you know, two bedrooms, um, very small. Um, uh, You know, you're walking past these apartments where uh, 10 or 15 family members live. It's like tenements. In one space on top of each other. Yeah. So if if it, it, and he's, he even says, he says like, um, I can understand where the rage comes from when you're living in economic conditions like this, when you are living at the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. The the bottom tier of um, poverty and you have not, you have nothing else to live for. I mean, that's what creates radicalization. Those are the, those are the situations and the circumstances that create radicalization is when you have nothing to lose. And I think think other ways to fight too, um, because where did the conversation go from there? It'd be like, well, you would be better off running for office or, you know, joining a nonprofit. But that was not really um, an option that a lot of these working class broke, immobilized, and having multiple dependents prisoners had. So I, yeah. I do understand that you have limited outlets. It's it's a tricky situation. And this is something that will that we discussed about hunger strikes as well. But yeah. um in terms of like the the control that you do have. Um but when you give a population um no hope, no political power at all, no say for themselves. They don't have any they don't have any way to change their circumstances except right. through the, these means that we look at and we say, oh, those are, those are barbaric actions. Like, how could you do that? How could you bomb your own? You know, it's completely counterintuitive. But they have no, you're, you're not giving them any other path to anything else. And they're miserable. And it's, you look at, these are circumstances that have created you know, revolutionary mindsets across history and across, uh, you know, you know, globally. Um, and it, it, again, it goes back to, um, the fact that it's like the, the outcomes are still terrible. The outcomes like in, in, in often, um, don't work to the benefit of the, those people who are acting out, but you can understand yeah, the circumstances that, that, that cultivate can, um, that mentality. Yeah. I, I guess the it comes down to I can sympathize, not always empathize. Um, yeah. And I, even comparing the Irish experience here and and seeing, you know, I I think you're kind of on on the home turf there, and it becomes a lot more polarized because of that. And that probably made everybody a lot more entrenched in their own um, like almost tribal sensibilities that. Not only is this group discriminating against you, but they discriminated against your grandfather and his grandfather. And by the way, his grandfather could remember when the potato famine happened and they refused aid. aid. Like, yeah. It's legacy of, of discrimination and also not feeling a way out. Um, but we should say in terms of this particular conflict, because I think we should jump then to what we do about it on... Uh, national scale here, but we should say that a 
a negotiation was reached, an agreement was reached, um, I believe it like around the end of the 2010s. Um, I know that actually one of the Kennedy sisters who just passed away was involved in drafting it. Uh, I want to say Pat Kennedy. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I believe it was there. It started with the Clinton administration. I think it ended with the Obama administration. Um, John Kerry and, and Hillary Clinton were both involved in brokering disagreement. So that's good. Um, it's, it's relatively peaceful now. It was peaceful when I visited about 10 years ago. Uh, there is some question because there still is that, that bifurcation and balance of, it's not as obvious class-wise, but there's the religious difference and the cultural difference. Yeah. Um, and with Brexit, with the UK leaving the EU with no great justification and no great plan, um, I think Northern Ireland is starting to wonder again, um, why are we connected to this? Right. Uh, Where do we fit into this agreement? Where do kingdom we that's shooting itself of? in the foot. Can yeah. we stick around with Ireland, which is still in the EU and is not going to fuck everyone over? Um, so yeah. that could come to a head again. Brexit is putting a very tenuous situation mm-hmm. uh, at risk. And, and it's that, their fault fully. Yeah, like, absolutely. So, and Thatcher's dead this time, so we can't even blame her, which is really tough. Oh, the way, speaking of Thatcher, the quote that I was trying to set up, oh. I completely forgot about. The, the terms that they were trying to settle on during the hunger strike um, at, at Long Cash, the IRA prisoners, the, the reason they had a hunger strike was to uh, try to reestablish their, uh, their standing as political prisoners in order to get back those um, benefits and that, that treatment that they had pre-1977. And a lot of it's symbolic, yeah. Yeah, and this, this is an 81. Thatcher refused to budge. Um, she would not negotiate. And she said, crime is crime is crime, and crime is not political, which is the most mind-bogglingly arrogant and ignorant thing it's to say. So crime is always political. It, 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 yeah, like, so, even if you yeah. don't agree with, even if you don't acknowledge the uh, political, like, if, if it's a group like the IRA where um, you dismiss all of their you know, political reasoning behind it, the, crime is always the symptom of a political mm-hmm. disease. Yeah, and you can you can condemn the methodology as I think I do, is certainly at least in my head I do, um, condemn the methodology and empathize or, you know, understand the catalyst and the goal. And certainly that is your role if it is happening in your own country mm-hmm. under your watch, for which, you know, how much responsibility you have for its origin, who knows, but for its perpetuation when people, when those civilians are dying and you profess that it's a crime, you should care about things that will perpetuate the violence and will, you know, delay a resolution. And so it's not even like in professing that she was like working on alternative solutions to achieve peace. No, she dug um, her heels in. It was just kind of like, nope, uh, won't entertain the demands and won't even entertain the conversation. So Absolutely. she's a real gem. Um, had there been a different leader in office during um, oh, yeah. these hunger strikes, I think that I think that uh, a lot fewer men would have died, and I think that the demands would have been at least there would have been more negotiation uh, with yeah. the prisoners early on. Because um, one thing that this could be the bridge, maybe mm-hmm. one thing that I would say, um, in an ultimate sense, and you can't help but connect it. At least I can't help but connect it to your own family. And what if your 
um, impassioned cousin was the one dying what actually happened and that's what i kept coming back to it's like what did they achieve this time because the the resolutions on a global scale were not reached for another roughly 30 years so but the one thing that i will say this did do that probably would not have been necessary if thatcher had engaged at all in her own goddamn country was it brought international attention to uh, what was otherwise a domestic conflict. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, nine or 10, I guess, people are dying because they are this upset about treatment in their homeland and the they're prime minister isn't, themselves. isn't and addressing it. Yeah. Like, so I think that was a huge piece of global signaling beyond just the symbolism of political prisoner on a domestic legal scale. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, it's, and I think it's that, made a difference here in yeah, the, ICE cases. A good bridge, especially, is to acknowledge that um, people engage in hunger strikes because oftentimes in situations like this, when you are detained, the only thing you have control of to any extent is your own body and not even where it is or how it's treated, but what you put in it. And I think that what we're seeing with the ICE detention hunger strikes they have no control over their surroundings. They have no control over their future or decisions that are made on their behalf. One decision they can make is whether or not to eat. And so a hunger strike really is kind of the last, what is the word? The um, It's the last thing left in your arsenal, kind of. Thank you. It, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. I don't know what word yeah. I'm looking for there. But yeah, it's, it is um, oftentimes the last option for people because it's, it, when you are a prisoner or a detainee of any kind, the state is making all your choices for you and you have you can't control where you go or any other way you really protest except this this one way. And it is externally nonviolent. And it, mm-hmm. we should make this distinction um, at the top of the conversation about applying these sorts of things domestically in the United States um, that ICE detainees, in my eyes at least, and in a practical sense too, there's a big difference because the crime, such as it is that they're being detained for, is not a violent one. It is just, it's immigration related. It's a presence-based crime and they are being detained awaiting a hearing. So at least um, in the most current cases in New Jersey, potentially others, their goal is only to be released home pending that hearing. So kind of released on their own reconnaissance yeah, and to come back for the immigration hearing, which still could ultimately deport them. Yeah, they just don't want to, especially in the middle of a pandemic, be held in a, a prison facility awaiting that. Right. So that that to me is a, a fundamental difference. Um, not to um, malign IRA context at all, but mm-hmm. to make no, it it's even a, more it's an clear absolutely cut, different. Uh, it's an absolutely different uh, case because it, it, we've said this before on the podcast, but oftentimes. It's not even considered like the the way that we paint undocumented immigrants in this country mm-hmm. oftentimes is through the rhetoric of, oh, they're criminals. But violating not even adjudicated. No, absolutely. So <laughs> violating immigration law, it's it is a violation of a law, but it's on the same level as it's misconduct. It's like breaking it's like a it's like breaking a traffic law or getting a parking ticket. It's it, it's yeah, not it's at the same level. Type. Absolutely. So you may be a violator, but technically you're not a quote unquote criminal, which is a word. Well, and that you're is not even adjudicated that yet because this is yeah. pending the immigration hearing. This is so, as they're being but, held. You know, um, so um, it's essentially these- before bail. Like it's an equivalent of not being released if you can't pay bail. Yeah. Except that there is not the same initial 
anything except yeah. immigration, like presence and stuff, which I think both of us agree on violent offenses versus nonviolent no, absolutely, offenses. Absolutely. Like no, it, the difference. Yeah. Um, even though the, the reason why we are comparing it to hunger strikes that the IRA took part in is because it is one of the most well-known uses of hunger strikes yeah. uh, by, by prisoners. Um, but yeah, absolutely. When it comes down to ICE detainees, uh, a lot of these people, first of all, one could question whether or not they should be held in the first place. I certainly yeah. do. I believe you do as well. Even before 2020, there really was no reason for them to be detained. And now it's <laughs> their lives are at risk because of yeah. COVID. And actually that, that is what has been causing these hunger strikes. The purpose of almost all of them um, has been in order to draw attention to the fact that they are not being protected from COVID. Um, they, so their bodies already are on the line in that sense. It's like, life or death. It's life or death for them if they continue to be held. COVID case rates are 13 times higher among ICE detainees uh, than the regular population. It is, it is spreading like wildfire through these populations. Kind um, of makes sense because they're in these contained- Close quarters. Close, yeah. Um, no ventilation they, per se, nowhere else to go. Absolutely. Uh, the epidemiologist Crisp, I believe it's Breyer, uh, he was quoted as saying, indoor facilities, crowded population den density, and hygiene challenges make prisons, jails, and detention centers particularly vulnerable to infectious viruses and certainly to this virus, meaning COVID. So the people who are being held, uh, the ICE detainees, um, the reason why, and this started in March, the, the first one took place in March in Newark. Detainees demanded to be released for their own safety because of anxiety surrounding <laughs> COVID and because it was spreading like wildfire through these uh, facilities. From March to April, over 2,000 immigrants at ICE facilities in California, Florida, New Mexico, Ohio, and other states uh, refused meals to call attention to the conditions uh, that they say make them more vulnerable to the virus. And everyone knows how terrifying, yeah. especially in March, COVID was. Oh, we yeah. did not know anything about it. And uh, as we understand it more, it's yeah. become worse. It's like, uh, oh, now we know that it does spread really badly if you have shared air, close mm -hmm. quarters, you know, no exposure to Which is a prison. That's yeah, that's, that's perfect. Yeah. Of, uh, of any kind of facility where people are detained and can't leave of their own accord. So um, by, I couldn't find to date how many uh, hunger strikes had gone on this year, but in July, there had been 30 hunger strikes uh, of varying degrees, and we'll get in a little more into that in a second, but of varying degrees at facilities across the United States. So again, people who are so desperate and so scared of getting COVID that yeah. they are willing to uh, use hunger strikes to draw attention to, to their circumstances. by other means. Yeah. yeah. So um, now is probably a good time to talk about what hunger striking actually does to your body. It, it really is, and, and this is true in the IRA context, it's, it's certainly true when you think about anybody using this as a last resort and as the last piece of control and, and weapon that they have kind of in their own defense. So th this was really graphic in hunger, uh, but obviously, as with anything that wastes your, your muscles, you see it, it's a really similar look to AIDS patients because you you start digesting your own muscle tissue at a certain point. I may be somewhat butchering this explanation, but from the way that it was explained to me by um, 
actual human doctor mom, um, is that at a certain point you start breaking down your muscle tissue because there's nothing left to digest in your body after all the fat is gone. And the cells that you're digesting of muscle tissue are not being metabolized through your digestive tract. So it's just kind of happening in the bloodstream, but the cells that are produced are bigger and cannot really go through the normal filtering processes. So you damage and waste your vital organs because it can't be processed in the same way that food can. So that's why, um, you know, some of the women who ended up surviving the hunger strikes with the IRA still cannot eat and have eating disorders kind of triggered by medical problems because their livers and their kidneys can't process food anymore. It's so damaged by function in the same way. digesting your own body. Yeah. Your um, body literally eats itself from the inside out. And also you get these um, pressure sores just from the points where your bones are hitting any surface, whether it's a bed, a blanket, clothing. So you see it like on the joints, on spines, they just become these open weeping wounds and your immune system is so compromised. They never um, heal. That they never heal, they get infected, they stay open, and they put these things called blanket cages over your body when you sleep because just the touch of a blanket is so painful and so damaging, and yet your body has no fat to keep it warm, so you have to be covered. But like, it really is just brutal. Um, it gets to a certain point where just the act of lying down, you not yeah. even moving, is dangerous to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then eventually your body does shut down. I, uh, Bobby Sands died after 66 days. Like we said, nine other men died after him. It's a horrible mm-hmm. way to die. Um, you become completely emaciated and it's very painful. It's very long. It's very drawn out. Um, so you could, it, it really gives context to how desperate you have to be to put yourself in the mm-hmm. situation. And the hunger strikes that are taking place at the ice detention centers vary. So some of them are full hunger strikes, so they're not eating anything. Um, some of them are where they're eating once a day or they're eating every three days or um, they have other sort of systems set up. So it's not quite the same like drawn out suicide. That, but like um, really steep decline too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's, it's still it's still obvious to everyone around you that you're not, that you're malnourished and it does, it does have a long term effect on your body, no matter what, if you're tenuous, right. Yeah. If you're, you know, doing a hunger strike over a long period of time, it is going to have a long term effect on your body. Um, and in the same way that anorexia or any other eating disorder does. Yeah. Actually side note PSA that this is, um, the same thing that happens to your body. If you, uh, really commit, to any of those eating disorders that deprive you of nutrition, that, that it can actually kill you through the same means of your organs shutting down. So anybody who is suffering with that, please seek help because it can be just as brutal. Yeah, the yeah yeah. Take care of yourself, and um, mm-hmm. this is a this is a very it's an ugly. But uh, so yeah, so this is. Not every hunger strike that has taken place in an ice detention facility has been at the level of uh, Bobby Sands and the IRA because Bobby Sands and the people who took part in the IRA hunger strike were prepared to die. They went into it um, fully dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people in ice detention centers think, thankfully, um, it's more about the symbolism of it. 
Um, and it's more about drawing attention to what's going on, the uh, conditions in facilities. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. We're talking about it now. There's been a lot of yeah. media coverage of these uh, hunger strikes. Um, but thankfully, they are being a little more careful. A lot of them are actually eating enough to keep themselves going, but it's more. Uh, Some it's aren't, more the, though, also. Yeah. Like, we got a, a kind of running the gamut here. So, I actually heard an NPR story about some of the New Jersey detainees, and they said that a couple of them were drinking water from the toilet. That that was like their only self-permitted yes. access to sustenance, which to me is like, damn, that that's pretty dire in and of itself. So it really does run the gamut. And um, in a legal sense, the balance that our legal system strikes, and I think that I think this is about as, as well as you can do it if it's done effectively, at least in terms of not having control over whether they're released, like what a court can sign off on without being able to say sua sponte. And this um, is perf- a perfect jump into the constitutional, uh, sure. the constitutional side of this, the law side of this, and um, a little bit about like, what can the end result of these hunger sure. be? Like, can there be a positive that comes out of it? And I think that there can be in keeping the conversation going while making sure that as few people as possible are injured in the process. Um, so there are a couple of things that come into play because you're kind of, you have detention conditions on the one hand under the Eighth Amendment, which is the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, which also applies to whatever condition somebody is being held under that might make them feel pressed to do this sort of thing. I think I have not seen any evidence of that being the catalyst, except for the very fact of ICE detention, um, which is, you know, it's a pretty strong argument, but there might be other legal reasoning for like stronger legal reasoning for not holding them. Um, The fact that it's not necessary, certainly that we release violent criminals sometimes on their own reconnaissance, if they can pay bail, that's certainly if we're balancing yeah. what the actual threat to society is. Yeah, and lots of cities actually have emptied out uh, jails to an extent. Yeah. They have released people who they deem uh, not a danger to their communities around them because so it's doable. <laughs> being put in a jail should not be a death sentence. And under COVID, during the time of COVID, now especially. Yeah. it can be and has been for lots of people who um, just because they can't afford bail they yeah. are stuck in a situation where they are at a much higher risk. Again, uh, 13 times higher. And uh, right. so uh, it's always a problem from a moral point of view. Systems. Absolutely. Yeah, we've discussed the fact that cash bail is fundamentally an immoral uh, right. system. But So I, I'm a little like, like the COVID makes it so much more clear cut. But also, let's not forget this when we have a vaccine because yeah. there are certainly reasons on the hierarchy and, and on the general scheme of things that we don't need to do this. Um, it's a lot of tax dollars. If you care about nothing else, it's a lot of money. To Why are we spending money? Yeah. Holding people who can otherwise who, be at home. Like, yeah, <laughs> and who usually absolutely. come back statistically, but so the eighth amendment is part of it. If the, if it's clear that a catalyst for the, the hunger strike is cruel and unusual, punishment in the detention conditions. Uh, The biggest thing that probably comes into play is that balancing with due process, which is life, liberty, or property deprivation. You need adequate process before doing that. Um, And weighing that sort of interest, the liberty interest, it's the same thing that we talk about with the right to abortion. 
it's this kind of amorphous liberty, meaning bodily integrity, right to privacy, non-intervention without some sort of documented objective, quote unquote, process before doing that. So whether you can force feed somebody is, is often what it will come down to in those cases where somebody's getting to a very dire point and when you can reach that point. So in these cases, there was actually a 2019 case where ICE officials in Texas were ordered under similar circumstances. And I don't think COVID would have played a role at that point, right? Yeah, that was just 2020. Yeah, it's, been, it's just been a long ass year. It's just been one year, right? Oh, this God. year has just felt like many, many lifetimes. <laughs> if you and so, so you forget that 2019, uh, was we were like allowed to just, we could just walk into a crowd just, and like, make out with whoever, whoever we wanted. It's insane. That, that was 2019. You can get on a plane and eat an egg. Uh, in front of everybody you know what? maybe things have changed for the better a little bit maybe maybe there's some silver linings <laughs> but yeah so in but um yeah so in in 2019 um a federal judge in texas did order ice officials um to stop force feeding via the way that they do it it is kind of um jarring they I mean, for better or worse, this is how people who cannot otherwise eat are fed in other circumstances. If they're uh, mentally or physically incapacitated, there's like physical restraints um, and you they kind of snake a tube through your nose down into your stomach. It's very, um, it's very violating, really. It feels really gross to think about. I've never had it done and I would hope that I never do. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the physical intervention. It's pretty serious. So a federal judge ordered ICE to stop doing that for detainees who are on hunger strike in 2019, but said if their condition, if the detainee's condition physically deteriorated more, that they would re-examine it and maybe authorize that force feeding to start again. So what it kind of has come down to at this point, and we're also factoring in a First Amendment right to um, expression and the physical protest that's being manifested there, it's this case-by-case, sometimes day-by-day, week-by-week balancing that'll take place about whether the intervention by the state, who kind of are the custodians of these people in the same way that a kid who's a ward of the state, um, there is a duty to protect them, which in a general sense is a good thing, that that it's what protects us from neglect, at least in a legal sense, um, violence, things like people, like Khalif Browder um, killing him. So that's kind of the level of duty that allows the state to be held liable in theory. It doesn't mean it always works out, but it's better to have it than to not. Right. Um, it's a level of protection. So, right, right. So that's kind of, it's going to be a reconsulting with courts at every um, stage when somebody's health starts to deteriorate based on that. And hopefully in doing so, so the 2019 Texas case actually was precipitated by a statement from the UN the Human Rights Commission, where they said force-feeding detainees unnecessarily or forcibly may, in case, in some cases, violate the Convention Against Torture. So this was the UN hearing about this case because of protests, because of the hunger strikes themselves, and being like, hey guys, um, this could be a, a violation of international law, so do with that what you will. Um, and the U.S. District Court took that signal and they're like, all right, you guys need to stop. 
Yeah. And we'll be a little more careful about when we authorize this power because it's yeah. like forced medical treatment. It's very hard. Yeah. We actually talk about it in our guardianship episode with uh, Britney Spears, ironically. Yeah. That, uh, page seven, pop history. Yeah. That you always need individual authorization for forced medication and forced medical treatment in this country. And that's a good thing. Um, but it just means a lot of trips back to court yeah. when people hunger strike. The state should not again we can we can say that the you know the fact that the state is a custodian of these people is a good thing to an extent but um i mean in bodily terms of autonomy duty, good. yeah absolutely yeah. bodily autonomy is really um such a in my opinion just like really the last vestige i mean it is like yeah it should be sacred you should be yeah. able to decide what happens to your own body for better or worse. You should be, and, I, and this is why I support. It's a right to die thing too. And this is why I support right to die. Because yeah. you should be able to decide what happens stuff. to your body and the government should not be able to intervene with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in situations like this where people, uh, again, it's their last, it's their last ounce of control they have because every other decision has been taken away from them. All other freedom has yeah. been taken away from them. Um, it's really adding insult to injury to say, no, you can't even do this. You can't even, you can't even yeah. show your, your freedom and your independence in your own body through this strike. And yes, control, on yeah. one hand, it's, it's sort of macabre to think about, you know, letting someone die via hunger strike or something else, but, um, but there's no good ultimately that's their choice. That is their choice. Yeah. That's their decision and um, what happens to their own body. And I think that it's, it's, almost allowing them some dignity and deciding this is and one thing that actually they portray really well in hunger there were several protests there were the blanket protests and i believe called uh, it's called the wash protests where they weren't taking baths oh. things like that just anything that they could do to um uh use whatever control they had to show some control and that they were going to make calls for themselves the prison guards would force them to bathe they would force them to cut their hair they would they would you know, there was they Nobody were wins. <laughs> actively yeah and it, and part of that was to break their spirit down to say no you actually yeah. don't have this power we can take even that from you and it's even so choices tricky. over your own body from you because i i mean not at all to especially in that circumstance empathize uh with the state but uh, this actually came up in the ice context that one of the New Jersey facilities, I don't know if it was an ICE facility or a prison facility, but within the last two years or so, somebody in New Jersey went on hunger strike and was released consequently. Um, so you can get into and picture this sort of reasoning applying to the most violent offenders who are being detained before we have some sort of systemic change, uh, which admittedly is, is the goal for a lot of these systems. But say you have the most violent offenders and now you set a precedent as the state at large that you release people if they do X, Y, Z and that it works. It's very tricky to navigate that because you could encourage people to do something that if you don't comply with what they expect you to do, they kill themselves. Yeah. Um, which it like, it's kind of a catch 22. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know how you win there. And the best that I you're can the state, envision yeah is and honestly the people too <laughs> like, yeah because i i don't know i think the best that i can picture the balance that the district court in texas struck is probably about as good as i can picture in our current legal system is re-examine it every time that they get to 
whatever everybody determines is a dire enough condition that the intervention of force feeding is immediately better than the risk of death. Mm -hmm. um, and it, also as a Supreme Court and Constitution junkie, I should plug that you see from what Brooke was saying with like bodily integrity, right to die, how all these rights are connected because a lot of them come down to that due process when the government can tell you what to do with your body. Absolutely. So you see things like, um, you know, palliative care at the end of life with terminal diseases, uh, right to abortion and birth control. Yeah. Um, even things like religious control by state and even private corporate entities at this point imposing their will, whether it be like anti quote unquote suicide, anti quote unquote abortion, um, that those sort of things do become interconnected with all these sorts of issues. And so it's, it's really worthy to hang your hat on the courts, the constitution, um, and who has control of nominating. Yeah. So if you live in and Georgia, fucking vote. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And just from a personal standpoint, too, you know, when you fight for uh, your own right to autonomy, yeah. you should also fight for everyone around you's right to bodily autonomy. In future, Because they yeah, are right. all connected, like you said. And um, yeah, your right to decide what you do with yourself is mm -hmm. connected to your neighbor, the person in the ICE detention facility, um, yep. The woman who you don't, the woman you've never met before who needs to make decisions about her own body. Or that you have. <laughs> or that you have, absolutely. But these yeah, are, yeah. The, you know, are, you know are, all of our bodies We're are protected by the same law. We're in it together. Yeah. So yeah, and if we, this case falls, we fall too. In a yeah. Sense. We need to champion those rights for each other. So, yeah, the, the ongoing hunger strike in Bergen County right now, they are just desperately screaming for people to pay attention to this. That's why they're doing this. They're trying to draw attention to their cause, which is that they shouldn't be in these detention centers. And it's very dangerous. And this could be a death sentence for a lot of them. And uh, like, this is important to everyone's bodily autonomy. Why, yeah. do we, why do we care to keep them? Like, this comes down to a lot of things on the Republican side of the aisle that I think are such a misuse of energy and taxpayer money it's like, why are we spending this much energy collectively keeping people who did not commit a violent crime in a state-funded facility that is unsafe, where, like, everybody loses? I just, because like, it's about, it's signaling to people, to undocumented immigrants, people who want to come to this country, um, that there will be consequences for trying to do so. That is what, that is the entire purpose of this. We are wasting taxpayer money. Uh, we are putting human beings in harm's way and treating them like animals for, for symbolism. Just, Give me just, your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Um, I think we're, are we about ready to wrap up here? I'm ready, ready to wrap everything. up. Um, yeah. So, oh, we should give a shout out to, to honestly, to all of you, because we kind of um, diddled a little bit through the, it was the holidays. Over, yeah. We had Thanksgiving. We were traveling. Uh, yeah, we were um, quarantined after traveling. I got tested. And we did travel a lot last car. week. By yeah. solo car. Oh, I mean, yeah. like we just drove through the desert listening to Grimes and Fiona Apple, and it was great. But we definitely want to shout out our photographer who took awesome photos of us at oh, Vasquez gorgeous. Rocks. Yeah. And at the Scientology headquarters in LA. Which was. Um, unbelievable we talked about oh, that great. in our stream last week which you can yeah. access on our twitch yeah check out our twitch stream um we talk about how we got into the scientology facility and some nice on to the grounds yeah 
Yeah. Uh, but Natasha Wilson is an incredible photographer. Check her out. Uh, she did a great job, especially for us non-models, making our faces and bodies do the right things um, and Hit wear the, the right, right angles. Things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Follow her on social media and stuff. I think she oh, is natashawilson.co. Natasha That's right. Yeah. And Where hire can her you because, can. damn. Oh, oh yeah, she's uh, hard to say in the wind these days. But online, I am MKZ Joy Brennan on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm still Get Me to a Nunnery, but with the number two. Uh, on Instagram, I'm Brooke Angeline. On Twitter, I'm BKE Rogers. Um, we now have a Patreon that you can find. Yes at uh, patreon.com slash xx persuasive is that yeah we're gonna start doing more patreon stuff we're gonna start doing more streams that you can access through patreon and we're gonna start doing monthly bonus episodes soon that you can access mm-hmm. at the um through patreon so we're gonna start doing some fun new extra things if you want and more if you of join us. you'll inspire us to make more stuff because We've already been making weird mock-ups of potential shirts and stickers. If people they're real weird. want to pay they're us, real weird. they're super weird. And, um, and they're, they're good only weird. tangentially connected to our topical content, as per usual. So, <laughs> but they're right. made with love by us. Oh, yeah. So. Always. Um, all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening in. Uh, I'm going to go watch Dairy Girls again, probably, to be honest. That's the flirtier option. Chose that. Damn. All right. Good night, party people. Be good, be safe, be happy. Bye. Bye.